Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. After months of hearings, the house will be in order. Of investigations, will come to order. Good morning, everyone. Of testimonies, the House Committee on the Judiciary will come to order. After battles over documents and witnesses, America will remember this day, unfortunately, where the Senate did not live up to its responsibilities, where the Senate turned away from truth and went along with a sham trial. After countless claims of inappropriate behavior and rebuttals of a perfect call. That call was perfect. It couldn't have been nicer. And even the Ukrainian government put out a statement that that was a perfect call. There was no pressure put on them whatsoever. President Donald Trump's impeachment process finally comes to an end. The Senate, having tried Donald John Trump, President of the United States, upon two articles of impeachment exhibited against him by the House of Representatives, and two-thirds of the senators present not having found him guilty of the charges contained therein. It is therefore ordered and adjudged that the said Donald John Trump be, and he is hereby, acquitted of the charges in said articles. The United States Senate acquitted Trump on charges brought by the House of Representatives of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. That vote fell largely along party lines, with one exception. Senator Mitt Romney of Utah historically voted with the Democrats to convict the president on the first article of impeachment, abuse of power. That marked the first time in American history that a member of the president's own party has voted to remove him. Romney did vote with Republicans to acquit the president on Article Two, obstruction of Congress. I believe that the act he took, an effort to corrupt an election, is as destructive uh, an attack on the oath of office and on our Constitution as I can imagine. It is a high crime and misdemeanor within the meaning of the Constitution, and that is not a decision I take lightly. This moment is only the third time in U.S. history that the Senate has held an impeachment trial. The Senate has never voted to convict and remove a president. An impeachment trial in the Senate means Congress, and to some extent the American people, are deciding where to draw lines around presidential conduct, what's acceptable, what's inappropriate, and what rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. Over the course of the Senate trial, House managers and Trump's lawyers engaged in arguments for their respective positions. Trump's acquittal can be interpreted as a reflection of the Senate agreeing with the Trump team's arguments. And if that's the case, which of Trump's lawyers' arguments have established new precedent? How might this acquittal embolden not only this president, but future presidents? And at the end of this partisan impeachment process, has the balance of power shifted in this country? Can the pendulum ever swing back toward equilibrium? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. The United States Senate, by acquitting the president, has said, yes, the president can do that, at least regarding his conduct in Ukraine. So what does his acquittal mean then for the powers of the office of the presidency? 
I turned to Washington Post senior editor Mark Fisher, who's also the author of Trump Revealed, the definitive biography of the 45th president. I first asked him to explain the overall approach of Trump's legal team during the Senate trial. What set of beliefs or themes really drove most of their arguments? Well, they were kind of improvising as they went along, and and there really weren't strong principles except for the idea that the Constitution envisions this supremely powerful executive. And that was something that was really at odds with a lot of the scholarship and a lot of the political history. The attorney general, Bill Barr, has this concept of executive authority. And what that says is it allows the president to reject all kinds of congressional demands for information, for documents, for testimony. And Barr and some of his friends in the conservative circles in Washington, the Federalist Society, they have this consistent disdain for the accepted thrust of the constitutional law in the country, which takes it as the clear intent of the founders that there would be these checks and balances that would make all three branches of government co-equal. And Barr to the contrary, sees the president as first among equals. So this attitude is something he developed growing up in the 1960s and he saw Congress really going after Richard Nixon and the courts and other forces in society kind of pushing back at Nixon's idea of the imperial presidency. So all of this created or strengthened the idea of executive privilege and that's the only principle that you really see driving the Trump defense, this idea that the executive has the right to resist all of these congressional investigations and and impeachment itself. I want to drill down on that a little bit further. It seems like this would be an area for future presidents to really use to their advantage, the ability to sort of resist oversight from Congress. How does this differ from the way the interaction between the executive and Congress have traditionally worked? Well, it's kind of a yin-yang sort of relationship and it has really gone back and forth over the decades. So there have been periods where presidents were really clearly in charge and Franklin Roosevelt took presidential power to new heights and then Congress tried to push back against him, not terribly successfully. Richard Nixon created this imperial presidency and Congress pushed back more successfully for a time but then that that got watered down and I think everyone across the ideological spectrum would agree that right now Congress is really at a low point in terms of its authority in the relationship between the executive and the legislative. What does this enable for future presidents if we take Trump's legal team at their word and the acquittal at face value. If things were to stay as they are, the president would really be on top of the world because he's able to resist all of these congressional attempts to hold him to account and he's able to take all kinds of executive actions and you know, and in this manner, Trump is very much following in the pattern of Barack Obama who took executive actions to a new height. So I think presidential power regardless of party or ideology is really at a peak at this time and we're hearing the rumblings of folks in Congress saying, you know, we really need to assert ourselves. And we saw it in relation to the president's decisions about Syria or some of his other foreign adventures where you see Congress saying, even some Republicans saying, this is not what we had in mind. This is not what the Constitution has in mind. All right. Speaking of his foreign adventures, another thing that seems to have been endorsed by Trump's lawyers and now Republicans by extension, is the notion that a president can withhold this congressionally appropriated funding when he deems it necessary and with less scrutiny. Does that endorsement mean that Congress has has suffered a blow specifically to its power of the purse? Well, Donald Trump has paid relatively little attention to 
Congress's wishes when it comes to their central power, which is the appropriations power. Certainly the way in which he has gone about trying to fund his border wall with Mexico, Congress has at no point said, here's the money for that. Instead, uh, Trump has gone around their backs and taken money from other parts of the defense budget and repurposed it for for building the wall. And that is about as direct a slap in the face of Congress as you can imagine. And the congressional reaction has been mild. I want to go back to Trump's lawyer's arguments. Here's one that is now infamous from Alan Dershowitz on Trump's legal team. He essentially argued that if a president believes his leadership is the best thing for the country, then the actions he takes to get reelected are therefore appropriate. Dershowitz sort of softened this a little bit later. But regardless, does Trump's acquittal set a precedent that at least some actions in the name of reelection are permissible? It's specifically asking for foreign governments to help investigate your political rivals. Well, you saw immediately when Dershowitz made that comment, there was an uproar really from both parties and and from constitutional scholars across the country and in, in, from every ideology. And I think that's because this was really new ground and this was a notion that simply had not come up before. And there's, there doesn't appear to be any backing for it and Dershowitz had to back down from it less than 24 hours after uttering those words. But it does give you a sense of just how far this notion of executive authority can go and can be pushed. And the attorney general, Bill Barr, did not really push back against it. And there's every reason to believe that he would be fairly comfortable with that. And his his kind of foundational belief is that the only recourse against a president is the election, the ballot box. And he, he obviously concedes that impeachment exists and that there are times that call for it, but he has a very narrow definition of, of when it might be appropriate. Is, is much of that spilling into public opinion? I'm trying to understand if, at least in the court of public opinion, are Americans now conditioned to be sort of more accepting of executive authority? Does acquittal essentially mean that there's a, like a new standard for acceptable behavior from a president? Legally, no. But politically, I think that's uh, that appears to be right, at least in this moment. The election of Donald Trump, the embrace of a kind of populist approach to politics uh, is very much a call for a strong leader. And Donald Trump is a huge fan of strongmen around the world, dictators even. And so most Americans would not say we want a dictator, but a solid half of Americans now approve of the behavior of a president who has a very strong presidency in mind. And so, so you know, somewhere from a third to a half of the country that supports Trump is open to that concept. And just as we've seen that Republican politicians are torn between their personal beliefs that the president went way too far, that his behavior was unacceptable, and on the other hand, they feel that it's politically vital for them to stand by this president or or they'll lose their own jobs or, or their own place with their voters. So there is this willingness to look the other way that I think is is very much in the air. Among When you talk to Trump supporters, they very often say, I don't like the style. I find it humiliating or embarrassing, but I like what he gets done. And that, as long as people maintain that attitude, he's going to stay in office. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday. 
Or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. So when Republican senators, as you say, Lamar Alexander, for example, when they say things like Trump's actions were inappropriate but not quite impeachable, does that set new precedent for what's considered impeachable conduct or what qualifies as a high crime and misdemeanor? I don't think so. I, I mean, the standard defense in any impeachment is is going to be that the actions were problematic but not impeachable. That That's uh, that's kind of the easiest argument to make against any in, uh, effort to remove someone from office. But at some point, there has to be a line drawn between inappropriate and, and technically illegal behavior on one hand and on the other hand, behavior that is so egregious that it justifies the Constitution's ultimate weapon removal from office. And as Nancy Pelosi said, the House Speaker, before she caved to the people on her left in her own party and embrace the impeachment process. Prior to that, she was saying that impeachment should be rare and always bipartisan, which this, of course, never had a prayer of being. So she correctly saw this as a political process and uh, then allowed the, the fever of the moment to push her into an action that was destined, obviously, to end in a defeat for the Democrats and the opponents of the president. So it's not – I don't think there's a new precedent set here. I think this is kind of the standard argument against impeachment and this time it happened to work because the uh, opponents of the president went into this without establishing any kind of bipartisan support. So then if not impeachment and not politically damaging, are there any consequences for a president when conduct is inappropriate or wrong? There is a step below impeachment and that is censure. And censure is simply the Congress saying – you did a really bad thing and we're going to slap you around a little bit even though it doesn't mean you're removed from office or in any other way uh, hurt. Perhaps you're hurt politically. And But even censure, not having the teeth of impeachment is very rarely done. In fact, it's only been completed once against an American president and that was Donald Trump's hero, Andrew Jackson. And he was censured for withholding documents from Congress that, con that Congress demanded because he had defunded the Bank of the United States. So it's really quite analogous to the current situation. Other Congresses have threatened presidents with censure uh, but didn't go all the way. Richard Nixon over the Watergate scandal, Bill Clinton in the Monica Lewinsky matter, but they've never been able to get the votes for it. Censure has been used quite a number of times, more than 30 times, against fellow members of Congress, including most famously against Senator Joe McCarthy for his red baiting back in the 1950s. Let's move on a little bit to talk about how Trump has reacted to all of this. What do we know about Trump's perception of his own acquittal? Do we have any evidence that his acquittal could embolden him further? Certainly, Trump will take a victory lap and he, he loves gloating when he perceives that he has an advantage over someone else. He can be vindictive in his rhetoric as we've all seen many times. But one of the central truths about Donald Trump is that he lives in the present. He has very little knowledge of or interest in the past. So you see him routinely making decisions that uh, don't take into account the history of, say, difficult relationships among countries. And he has very little interest in the future, the ramifications of what he might do to win this moment. He's all about winning this moment. He always has been throughout his life. And I think uh, he's going to react to the impeachment and the vote for acquittal in very much the same way. There'll be an immediate uh, bit of gloating. He, he does keep 
grudges for a while, and so you'll see him reacting in a nasty way, as we saw with him spurning the handshake of the House Speaker during the State of the Union address. So you'll see that kind of acting out. But another hallmark of Trump's character is that all of those grudges, all of those hatreds, all of those insults can flip at a moment's notice. And so if the time comes when he wants or needs to have more of a relationship with Nancy Pelosi, that will happen and he will pretend that nothing had ever come between them. All right. I want to turn to look at the sense of permanence around many of these things. Will future presidents be able to make a strong case for why they can do things similar to what Trump has done? Will they be asked to make a case at all? Or has power been granted with with such authority that that actions will no longer be questioned when the president makes them? I think you have to look at the history of the presidency as a pendulum that swings back and forth between uh, very strong executive power and a more balanced relationship with Congress and with the rest of the government. There are periods of excess in executive behavior that happen almost like clockwork every generation or two in American history and then those the executive gets swatted down. We've seen that again and again, whether it's uh, Congress coming after FDR for creating this whole alphabet soup of agencies that really revolutionized the American government or going after Nixon and the imperial presidency by limiting his power with the War Powers Act uh, and other efforts to reform, to make government more transparent and to limit the range and power of the president. But those efforts never really last and there is something structurally about the government, about the constitution that gives the president more authority. It's not necessarily there in the words of the constitution but it is there in the way it plays out and in the public perception of the president as chief executive, as commander in chief, as all of these things that, that give him a power and authority and a centrality in our lives that Congress can never match up to. So if Congress seeks to, to swat down presidential power, as, as you put it, what can they do? Can they pass laws to tamp down the powers of the presidency? Sure. And and the War Powers Act is right. an example of that. Something that is a strict limit on the president's ability to wage war hasn't really worked out in the decades since uh, the 1970s when it was passed. But it's at least there on paper and some congressmen have uh, over time attempted to use it to rein in a president. It seems unlikely now that this congress or even the next one would move against the president or presidency in such a manner, uh, especially with such deep polarization. It's almost impossible to get anything through Congress. But you can certainly see that the opposition to Trump is so strong in some quarters in the country that there would be a movement among many people on the Democratic side to try to limit the president's power in a, in, a, in the next administration. Although, of course, if it's their administration, they may not be quite so keen to do that. And we see this reflected in the 2020 Democratic candidates, many of them when faced with criticism about their policies being unrealistic or unable to to pass through Congress. They've said, I'll do it by executive action. I have 100 executive actions. I'll deploy my first day in office, various things like that. Have they been empowered to do that by what they've seen in this presidency and the previous presidencies? Yeah, I think a, a, a probably the chief symptom that you see in Congress of this disease of of deep polarization in the country is as as they look at the impossibility of getting controversial or really almost any legislation through, you see presidents reacting by 
saying, okay, I'll do it myself. And Barack Obama set all kinds of records for executive actions by a president. And Donald Trump has followed very much in line despite having campaigned on the idea that that was outrageous and he would never do that. But he's realized that that's, the, you know, the, in many cases, the only way to get things done. Now, over the course of this conversation, we've spoken about how history sort of swings the balance of power back and forth between Congress and the White House. And yet, as we've come to the end of this, I'm struck by how much we've moved toward more executive action and how much less functional Congress seems to have become. Are we are we going to differ from history at this moment? Are we really at an unprecedented time of, of a dysfunctional Congress and a unilaterally acting president and, and presidency for that matter? There are some scholars who say that Congress is really at an all-time low and that the presidency has kind of taken the upper hand in what seems to be a semi-permanent way. But as you look back over the course of history, you do see that pendulum action. You do see that kind of waves of, of power ebbing and flowing between the legislative and the, the executive and the judicial branch as well. A very activist Supreme Court in the 1960s really pushing back against the other branches and saying, you know, we're, we're going to create some policy here too on whether it's uh, school desegregation or the rights of minorities. So there really is this kind of pressure back and forth that's baked into our system. That's the way it's supposed to work. And over time, I think you do see that when one branch takes too strong a hand, the others do eventually fight back on behalf of the voters. You know, we're in this period of, of extreme polarization now and that has changed a lot of the political calculus in the country. It has tremendously weakened the political parties, which were usually the way in which Congress fought back by amassing power and, and having the discipline to tell fellow members of their party what to do. That's at an all-time low. So there, there are new dynamics here, but I think that we'll see that over time, the system does right itself. And I think we've already seen in the three years of the Trump administration, we've seen the courts and the media and public opinion pushing back against Trump fairly effectively, even as Congress has not quite done so. So as we sit here on the day of Trump's acquittal in the Senate and recognize that our government is being tested in significant ways at this moment in history, I guess my question for you is, is our system built to sustain this? This impeachment is only the third of a president ever. And so you can't look at the Trump presidency and say that it has been an unvarnished success when the man has been impeached. It is a permanent black mark on his presidency just as it was for Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon and, and Andrew Johnson. And so the system is not always satisfying. It doesn't give opponents, even when there's a majority of people against the president, it doesn't mean the president's going to go away. But it does mean that uh, there are ways of pushing back and they're imperfect and they don't always happen in a timely fashion. But I think so far, at least, our history shows that we stumble through and it works, sort of. All right, Mark, thank you so much for your time. Sure. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you liked it, tell your friends. Share it. It goes a long way. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the rockin' Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. 
Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover, from global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.